0: Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. We are very excited to bring you a new episode of the podcast. Before we dive into this one, we have a few announcements to make. The program of the upcoming third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit is taking shape. This year, the meeting will be held between October 10th and 16th. The meeting will be virtual so that we can allow as many participants from around the world as possible. We will host live talks, which will be hosted on Zoom from October 10th to the 15th. Everyone is welcome to participate by either listening into the talks, presenting a poster, or submitting a pre-recorded talk. We will also have prizes for trainees for their great presentations. We are also trying out a few new things. We'll host networking and poster sessions for the first time on Wonder. We will have also a full day dedicated to trainees and to trainee talks. We'll be hosting also workshops on data analysis, on how to preserve data integrity in the lab and how to use GPCRDB. Everyone is welcome to attend and it's free when you become a Dr. GPCR Ecosystem site member, which is also free. Speaking of the ecosystem, we are excited to share that the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem 2.0 platform is now open. Visit drgpcr.com to explore the ecosystem. The ecosystem is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 50 of your peers who have already registered as site members. You'll also have the option to select a plan once you're a site member. You'll get access to all things Dr. GPCR, including access to new podcast episodes before they even get released to the general public. You'll get access to our new group discussion and forums, our job board, and our learning center while you'll be able to take a course or even prepare and share a course of your own with your colleagues. You'll also be able to discover GPCR companies and much more. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR dedicated online playground has to offer today. Once you're a site member, you can also become an ambassador, which means that you'll get your own dedicated Dr. GPCR ecosystem affiliate link. And every time someone subscribes, for the year to the ecosystem, you'll get compensated. This will potentially help you offset the cost of the yearly membership. Last but not least, we're also looking for content creators. Subscribe to the ecosystem and start writing your own GPCR-focused content, share it, and show off your GPCR talents. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Jean-Philippe. Hi, Jean-Philippe. Nice to have you on. Hello,
1: Yamina. Nice meeting you again. It's so great to,
0: to have you on. And before we kind of hit record, we just were just mentioning that we've met where we were at the same conference. I even remember sitting at the same table as you for breakfast at some point <laughs> at that conference in, in, at the Keystone in Ireland. So great to have you on today. Thank you. all right, so let's let's start at the beginning. Would you please walk us through a you know thirty thousand feet view of of your career as to where you started and where you are today?
1: So it's uh, uh, an interesting uh, journey in a way, because i I started being a teenager, fascinating by insects and plants. And this brings me to study biology. And my my dream was to become a, a biology teacher. I didn't want to be a scientist. I really wanted to be a, a, a teacher to save time going into the countryside looking for insects, birds, and flowers. And that's, what, that's why I started to study biology. And I don't know if I would say lucky me, but I met uh, very impressive teachers at the university. Philippe Acher is one, for example, And they really um, impressed me by what's going on in science, especially in neurobiology. And that's when I decided to turn off my main stream from becoming a a teacher and to go into more science and become a scientist. So then I started to study receptors and especially um, glutamate receptors. This was in the early 80s. Quite a, a while ago now, 40 <laughs> years precisely. And um, I, I, I started to study glutamate receptors at a time where glutamate was not even recognized by anyone in the community as being a transmitter. It was still a question how can such an amino acid be a, a, a very important neurotransmitter in our brain? And that's why I was studying uh, glutamate receptors. Of, I would say excitatory amino acid receptors, possibly not being activated by glutamate, but possibly being activated by other kind of acidic molecules, like cysteine, sulfenic acids, or other compounds that would be more specific to our human brain to be dedicated to such an important function. And that's how I, 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 I get into the discovery of specific glutamate-binding sites that, that were very different from the ionotropic receptors, the NMDA, en en receptors. and then we postulated, being in Joel Bocart's lab, Joel Bocart is well known in the GPCR field, that probably glutamate could activate uh, uh, G-protein couple receptors. And that's how, at the very early stages of my career, I get really lucky. This is luck. And science, you know, you have to be smart. You have to be lucky. And this has been a, a, a really a very nice luck that I participated in this discovery of the uh, so-called and well-known now metabotropic glutamate receptors.
0: That's, a that's how to- everything
1: started. And that's that's how I jumped into the glutamate receptor field. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, to my postdoc in a, in San Diego in Steve Einemann's lab with the goal of cloning these famous mGlu receptors. I lost. Sometimes you are lucky in science, and in that case, uh, the uh, group in Japan was much more successful than I was, and they cloned one receptor after the other, and I was, you know, trying to catch uh, in, in that field, but uh, it's, been, it's been quite difficult. Uh, to compete because I was alone in a a ionotropic glutamate receptor lab with all the technology, all the tools, but not necessarily all the the brain um, inputs that could be uh, useful for for my project. Uh, But lucky me, when you have, you know, sometimes you have bad luck, but you also have good luck, at the same time, I got a permanent position in France. So this was in the in the um, by the end of the 80s, and um, it was still possible to get a permanent position in France in the early stages of your career. So then I, I came back to France in 92 uh, and set up my uh, my group working on metabotropic glutamate receptors, and we get from discoveries to discoveries that these receptors are so fascinating. And um, I had a, a very nice discussion with, uh, on, on Visio and, uh, with um, uh, Skiniotis, you probably know, who is now doing a lot of uh, solving a lot of structures of class CGDCRs. And he discovered these receptors through the uh, Cryo EM uh, analysis. And he said, these receptors, these guys are really fascinating. And they are. And I'm still fascinated by these receptors, and we still work. Uh, on them, forty years after I participated to the discovery.
0: That's that's so amazing. You you made a couple of interesting points. So I'm going to take you back to the beginning of of what sure. you mentioned. You said as as a as a teenager you wanted to be a teacher. Do you have any teachers in the family? What drew you to teaching? We, I understand the biology aspect, the insects and the uh, yeah, and the plants. But
1: well, my, it's true that my parents were teachers, so maybe this influenced me. But the good thing is that I realized that um, going into what you love, and also what I really wanted to do was to share what I really, what was really uh, enthusiastic to me. And sharing what I love is something that is very important. That uh, I keep still going this way nowadays in science because when I teach, I really uh, love teaching, and apparently the students also uh, enjoy it. Uh, and sharing what you know is something that is essential. And also, you know, being a teacher, you have a lot of spare time. This is something that I was also looking for for family reasons. you know, you have time to take care of your kids, you have time to take care of your of your home, and you have time to take care of what you really love. I mean going into the nature and and so this this was my um my uh, my goal when I was around eighteen or something like that.
0: Did you um I I you remember, I remember you mentioned biology, but were you good at other scientific topics like math or chemistry or things like that?
1: Um, or it was just uh, buff? <laughs> no, no, I was I was fascinated by biology. I was fascinated by nature. Um but I, I was good at everything at school, for sure. So I was this kind of, you know, a pupil who had no big problems in the system, um, both in math in physics, uh, in, a, in, a, in most uh, scientific uh, um, uh, matters. Probably, yeah. But not in, in French. So my French, my French teacher, when I was uh, at high school, told me, you shouldn't go for long uh, you know, studies, because, because, you know, if you, if you become an engineer with a lot of responsibilities, you have to know how to write things, you have to know how to write reports. And um, it turned out that she was the, the, the sister of a, of a researcher I met later on in my career. And so we had a discussion later on, and I said, I told her, Yeah, I was not good in writing in French about all this, you know, 17th century uh, poetry or whatever. I was not interested in that. So it's very difficult to write good reports if you don't love what you talk about. But I I think I'm pretty good in writing uh, 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 scientific articles on grant application (laughs) and so on nowadays. So I was not that bad in writing. But uh, as long as you write something you love, I think you can can really express yourself. Yeah, it's, it's quite something that is I, uh, yeah.
0: that's so funny. What what was her response? Did what she uh... <laughs> I
1: was I was this was when I was uh, doing my preparing my PhD. So uh, her yeah. response was uh well okay. Good, nice. for <laughs> good for you good for you i missed the point <laughs> but
0: uh... yeah no i agree with you on the fact that if you if you do something and it it comes out through through what you're saying is that you really love what you're doing and it doesn't feel like work and it's it's a pleasure doing it and exactly. i feel the same way recording podcast episodes it's effortless it's just yeah. you know i come out energized i'm excited yeah. to to do these things and I have to agree I went to school in French as well in Canada and yes I did have French classical you know literature courses and sometimes it was very difficult to go to read through all those you know stories those books and then write a report about something that actually happened at some point and they just don't care about yeah. <laughs> And the French language. And you can that,
1: change your mind. Now, nowadays, I love writing, reading these books. But uh, when I was a yeah. teenager, I
0: didn't. And you're actually you're right because after I finished school and I didn't have French classical French literature classes, I, I loved reading in French. And don't get me wrong, I think the French language is such a beautiful language, but at the same time, it's such a difficult language to learn if you're not immersed in it.
1: Yes, I guess. Um, I imagine it's much more difficult than uh, English, especially because English is, you know, used all over the planet and probably Shakespeare is not very happy about how the (laughs) English language became. (laughs)
0: Probably not. Probably not. But I have to admit, I wrote my master's and my PhD thesis in French. And I think the, the thickness of those would be like one third if it were in English, because... It's, and I do that even now with, with French correspondence. If I write an email, I start out in French and then the next sentence is, I'm sorry, I'm switching to English because it's going to be much faster <laughs> for my brain to, to process. The second piece of information that you, you shared with us is, is you know, the luck, luck in science and sometimes you're unlucky in science. Um, how much do you think luck versus hard work contributed in percentage contributed to your success? 50-50, 75-25?
1: 50, um, hard work for sure, but, you know, I, I never realized I was working hard. As you mentioned, I mean, if you're doing what you really love to do, at the end, it's not working. It's, so I, what I think it is, it is really important is to be lucky, but also to realize you are lucky. And to realize you are lucky, you have to, be, you have to put your brain on the table, smash it, and think about what you observe. And then you realize that in oh there is something exciting here that it might be luck, uh, and then you have to go on this. So I think luck is you know something you have to realize, and to realize that you have you are in front of a, a lucky situation. It takes also a bit of your understanding of the situation, analyzing of the situation, and then concentrating on that situation and say, oh I'm going to make a story out of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you make a good point in here as well. Is really focusing on the big picture and trying to get that piece of information that you can, mm-hmm. you know, build on, build your story on, and make potentially interesting discoveries for the field and in science in general. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Third, third interesting point that you made. Uh, you mentioned, you know, being scooped and trying to uh, clone these receptors during your postdoc, and you mentioned that you were working alone. And I think. To that point, I think collaboration in science is absolutely crucial. Uh, Working alone is not an option because of the sheer volume of the work, but also the difficulties of the problem.
1: I think it was still possible in in the 90s. Uh, you, you could do good science being being alone. You could do a very nice you know, neuron paper just do, being an electrophysiologist and recording uh, synaptic activity, uh, whatever. This was still possible, but I guess nowadays it's impossible because if yeah. you look at the publications, the high-profile papers, really good stories, you will see that you have different techniques that have to be put together in order to make a story. And by yourself, you cannot handle all these technologies. I mean, going from electrophysiology, immunostaining, cloning, threats uh, to these, uh, whatever, all these things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one person cannot, you know, control all this. So you have to deal with people having different knowledge and different know-how, put them together in order for them to work on the same subject. I think so too, and
0: uh, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's,
1: it's very a good cool. thing.
0: It's it's important, but it's also a good thing because when you think about it from a you know holistic view and advancing science and understanding GPCR research or GPCR biology, it's good that we have all these techniques now. Mm-hmm. And it's also good that we can work together and pool all of these resources in order to answer higher level questions.
1: Yeah. One thing I want to make also that it's it's really nice to go out of your own field. And being a glutamate receptor guy, at at the beginning I was very well recognized in the glutamate receptor community, but not at all in the GPCR community. And, and, And then I get to know how people in the ionotropic glutamate receptor field were working. But at the same time, because I was interested in the GPCR, I was also attracted by the way the people from the GPCR were approaching things, and that's very interesting because you will see that these two groups of people ask the same, may ask the same questions, but may not approach them the same way, and you learn a lot from you know being uh, uh, in contact with people from a different field.
0: I think, I, and I think you again another great point um, to to really. Look outside the field because sometimes methodologies, techniques, potential collaborators um, could really help advance the work.
1: Yeah, it's the same. I mean, I get some some, some project on the uh, tyrosine kinases receptors, and this field is. I mean, in a way, if you look at this field, it's going into cancer biology basically. In most most studies, they're going to cell biology, but if you look at the structure function dynamics dimerization all that stuff they don't approach these questions whereas we do so in the gpco field sure. so it's 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 interesting to see um, how the fields um, approach the different questions and some are going to concentrate on something another field will concentrate on on a on different questions you know yeah. a different yeah. approach
0: it's great and what- when I think about tyrosine kinases in my mind, we know everything. It's done. There's nothing to do. But it's not true. It's not <laughs> it's, true. It's not there's true so much all. to be do, done. But just That's because, true. you know, when you fo- when you focus on one thing, which is GPCRs, then it's difficult to focus on other things, but I think as a as a, a you need to be able to pull out of your own field and look around and see what happens elsewhere and is there anything we can bring in? It's similar. You mentioned cancer, and 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 a lot of people don't think about you know G proteins or GPCRs as being in the can in cancers now, where the cancer field doesn't think about that. there are markers, oh, but that's please, that. Please.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally true. I mean, I I don't know. We we did apply three or four times to uh, grant agencies in France and the cancer field, and we never ever get funded. <laughs> Uh, even though I'm really sure that what we propose is really innovative, novel, uh, and everything would have been a breakthrough. I mean, M Blue Rs in Cancer, this is obvious. And and we never get funded to work on this. So
0: yeah, be- if because it come out one
1: day. I mean who
0: knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, for
1: who sure. Knows? For
0: sure. I think it's a matter of time and it's just uh it's, it, yeah, it's a matter of time and it's also a matter of, of keeping at it. I think consistency is important and not giving up is important, not only in the everyday lab work, and this is mainly to postdocs and students, but also at a higher level, when you have an idea, you have to follow through and, mm-hmm. uh, and go for it. I remember seeing uh, Brian Kobilka give a talk, and I think this was prior to the Nobel Prize And he was mentioning that he was almost out of funding and he had these purification columns in his office and he was almost, I think, putting in his own money in order to continue and do this work. And he persevered. And once he got the Nobel Prize, these kind of problems just went away. Yeah.
1: New new problems appear.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's always, I think the to-do list and the problem list is never done. This is always new. It's just a matter of, how you approach them and, you know, you move through those, those, those steps.
1: Sure.
0: So you also mentioned, so the one question I, I always ask and you kind of alluded to it is how did you get into studying GPCRs? When you started working on, on glutamate, did you know that it was a GPCR ligand? And what was that first moment? Or do you remember the first moment when you realized actually we're working with, with the GPCR?
1: Um. When was it? It's it's a it's an interesting story. Again, you know, different people working on different topics in the same lab and talking to each other. This is the trick. I mean, this the early 80s was the the period when people realized that GPCO were not well not only uh, producing or limiting the production of cyclic AMP. Was the point where people realized that IP3 was also a second messenger. And so people were started to study uh, IP3 production in, in different cell types and putting different ligands and discovering new pathways for GPCR. And this was, this was uh, at that period. And uh, just uh, on the uh, neighboring uh, laboratory, Fritz Sadecek and Samuel Weiss, two uh, uh, scientists in, in Joël Bokert's lab, were studying the alpha 1 adrenergic receptor. And, and of course, uh, Chris Kirk, um probably most of you don't know him but he was at the origin uh, of the discovery of ip3 came and did a sabbatical in our lab and bring all the technology to measure ip3 production at that time was kind of difficult with these big columns even hplc to separate the different uh, inositol phosphates and, and Fritz uh, Sladechek did, uh, did all these experiments on the alpha adrenergic receptor and discovered that the alpha one were indeed coupled to PLC and producing IP3. So because we had this glutamate receptor binding site, not related to ion channels, we knew that we didn't have any effect on producing cyclic AMP neurons was not working well. So we said, why don't we give it a try? And and that's how we jumped into discovering that glutamate and quisqualate or other glutamate analogs could produce IP3 in culture neurons, with a, a pharmacology that was not very similar to the um, other. I you not covered this? And then metabotropic glutamate receptors. Wow. And then, you know, if we, if we can go along these lines, I mean, when you make a, such a, a very important discovery, it was it was thanks to the association between different people. One believing that IP3, the second messenger, another one believing that some, I mean, excited amino acid could be a transmitter, another one doing glutamate binding and so on. But when you do such a discovery, what would be a dream that then people, wow, there are so many things to do. We should work together. And you do this, you do that, you do that, and so on. But the problem is, you know, human is are not like this. Human and, and egos. And happened I found <laughs> is that a fight. Oh, yes. A fight started between the people. And I was kicked away and saying, well, you should work. You should not work on metabotropic glutamate. So I switched to ionotropic receptors for a while. Came back to M. later later uh, due to you know egos and, and uh, was <laughs> was was something that you know was not really uh, uh, something I really appreciate in uh, in yeah. in that period of my life scientific life, but in a way this is happening so often.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it it's an it's an unf- You make a good point. It's an unfortunate reality that it does happen often. It,
1: yeah
0: i've heard Edu- horror stories
1: your <laughs> discovery can lead to um, disagreement between people because uh, yeah. who is the father you know everyone want to be the father and want to be the leader and so on so. Yeah. But,
0: yeah yeah who cares? <laughs> exactly but you know i think over time i learned that you can only work with people who actually want to work with you and and if it's not you know i feel like you know, looking for a job or finding a, a collaborators, and anytime it involves people, it's kind of like dating. You really mm-hmm. want to make sure that it's a you have a good foundation, you have open communication, and you have the desire to achieve something together. Yeah. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. It's okay.
1: Yeah.
0: But yeah, I.
1: Go on your way, continue what you love. And if you love and express, you know, that your enthusiasm in what you're doing, people will appreciate and will come to you.
0: Yes. And, and it's going to change. I mean, the best example I can think of is, is the podcast. Uh, when I initially decided to do the podcast, I reached out to 20 people. Some I knew very well, some I didn't know very well. And I said, this is my idea. I want to shine a light on you. Um, what do you think? responded, 75% said, yeah, great. 25% said, I don't even know what a podcast is, I can read a paper, (laughs) which is fine, you know? But it's funny because some of those people who said, no, I'm not interested, no, I don't know what you're talking about, ended up coming and talking to me on the podcast. But (laughs) these people needed time. And, you know, it's, it's what they call, the first one who came were the early adopters (laughs) <laughs> who said, sure, why not? And then afterwards, when you establish yourself and, you men- as you mentioned, keep at it, people will realize, oh, actually, this is a quite a good idea because it's already established, which is fine.
1: And it's useful for, every, for many people.
0: Exactly, which, which is fine. Yeah. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, more M-GluR receptors. Do you have a favorite one?
1: Um, Heterodymerase.
0: Okay. <laughs> you're the first <laughs> one to say that. So I've had, I've had answers as to, I don't have a favorite GPCR. I have a, G, a favorite G protein. Um, and uh, we, we took it to the next, next level. I think with Andrew Tobin the other day, he said he has a favorite phosphorylation motif, which <laughs> I thought was really a fun, but you're the first one who, who uh, comes up with, with the heterodimer. So which one is it?
1: Uh, Not only one, but I mean, the the point is that for for so many years, these class C GPCRs were recognized as dimers, that's for sure. Yes. And among the class C GPCRs, only the m receptors and the calcium sensing receptor are recognized as homodimers. And this was a dogma. Everybody were convinced that these are and can only be homodimers, made of two identical subunits. It took me maybe 3 years to convince the student to do the experiment and test whether these receptors could, you know, form heterodimeric entities and because they are covalently linked these heterodimers may be uh, stable over time and may have specific properties. Uh, and this was by the around 2010 and uh, when, when we, we realized that this does work, at least in transfected cells, of course, they, the next question was, are they real? When I say real, do they really exist in, in, in uh, native systems? And this has been quite challenging. Uh, several groups in the world are now working on it and several ways can be used to validate this. One way is to identify, uh, what we could call a pharmacological signature, that you have a, a specific pharmacological properties that you can reproduce in, uh, in brain slices, in, in our case. Uh, this is what Colleen Iswender and Jeff Kohn uh, did, the same with uh, Jonathan Jelic, and the same for us. We did it later than, than Colleen. But uh, at least it brings uh, uh, more data. And the last story we did was just to use antibodies, indeed uh, nanobodies, um, to um, indeed demonstrate that we can not only detect the proximity between an mv 2 nanobody or an mv 4 nanobody in brain slices, in brain samples, but we can also use these nanobodies to develop biosensors. So if you have a nanobody that recognizes the receptor only when being activated, Another one that binds the receptor, whatever state, you can get fret between the two nanobodies only when the receptor is activated. With this, you can check the pharmacological properties of your heterodimer in real situation with uh, cells dissociated from the brain. And this is what we did, and we characterized the 2,4-heterodimer. We characterized its pharmacological properties. And surprisingly, we found that in most drain regions, the 2,4-heterodimer is much more abundant than the 4,4-homo-dimer. So this this was a a, a big surprise. I'm very excited about about this uh, this new finding that we, we did recently and uh, fascinating, I think, because was not expecting. And the good thing is that in the field, nowadays, all the pharma industry realized that these things exist. And this totally changed the, the way they can analyze their molecule. For example, a positive allosteric modulator on the, on the normal dimer can become a negative allosteric modulator on the heterodimer. So yes. nothing can be predicted. Everything has to be reanalyzed looking at this at these new heterodynamic entities.
0: I think I think it's fascinating. And just wanted to mention that I did read your earlier papers, you know, about the heterodimer. Um, and I, I always thought that the the sci- they were elegant papers. I, I read them and I was like, wow, what an elegant way to show that hetero-, you know, in transfected cells. Um, how, how cool is this not only from a biological perspective, but from, from also a scientific perspective as to the approach on how to develop methods to actually look at heterodimers and transected cells. I always thought there was such an elegant way of, of proving something
1: that, That's something you know I, I always explain to my students and postdocs and also Philippe Rondard, my my colleagues you know with whom I'm, yeah. I've been working for more than 20 years. If we if we try to do what the others are doing, we're never ever going to be competitive. For a very simple reason, we don't have money in France. If we apply for a grant, the best we can get is two hundred thousand euros for five years. So <laughs> you can realize much. that yeah, that's really not much compared to you know when I review grant from the NIH or whatever, it's you know million dollars, not yeah. not one fifth of it. So because we don't have much money, we have to, to do something different. If we, if we want to compete with the people who have the money, we're never going to be successful because we, we're not going to be fast enough. Um, and, and so I always said, we have to think, you know, with debut Ficelle, as we said in France, you know, with uh, a yeah. uh, yeah. few, few tricks. And try to develop your own approach to answer the question that you really want to tackle. Uh, And this has been uh, something that um, uh, I I tried uh, for for many years, with the the quality control system adapted from the Galavi receptor to other receptors uh, in order to control the subunit composition of diners. This was a good trick that we're still using nowadays. the uh, the snap tag and all this uh, technology yep. that we that we we carry out with uh, together with with Cisbio bio and um, yes. the nanobody tools that we develop now uh, photo switchable ligands also uh, you know always collaboration with chemists they think it's very important to collaborate with chemists not always easy but uh, <laughs> very very important they, they yes, can because- provide you tools and you can provide them. I mean a collaboration, it's always a it has to be a win-win situation. Uh and with chemists, I mean the chemist has to be happy about about the data you provide and the characterization of his or her molecule. And vice versa, his her molecule has to be useful for your project. Yeah. Something important in, in collaboration.
0: No, I, I that's the...
1: Sorry.
0: No, there was there was
1: there
0: was a slight <laughs> lag between our, our... Our Zoom, so that's why I'm. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I always thought that yes, your work has always been very elegant, very you know the tools and all of these things, and it's it's a small world because I've actually at the Keystone meeting, Philippe Rondard was there, and I've recently met um, Laurent Prezot and actually yeah. uh, Karine Monnier, who was in Philippe Rondard's lab, was a colleague yes. of mine. She was doing her postdoc at Rockefeller University at the same time. So I, I think even, uh, I even got, while I was at Rockefeller's themselves from, from Philippe's uh, lab. So it's a really small world and collaboration yes. is, is very important. you mentioned chemists and I think chemists are fantastic collaborators. And yes, we don't speak the same language, but there is potential in, in doing some great work with, with chemists and other people in different areas in order to really be creative and solve yeah. problems.
1: So this, this uh, well, we can switch to a co- what, what is a collaboration? Because I think this is essential to be successful. You have to collaborate. Yes. Uh, because, because you don't know everything. You, you, you don't have the know-how in every kind of technology. Yeah. And the more you collaborate, the, the more chance you have to be successful. It's always something that I, I really enjoyed. And, and I always took care for any collaboration that both the participants and the collaboration gonna win something of the common work. So, so a chemist has to to be recognized for the chemistry he's doing, for the ligand he's been developing, and the biologist has to be able to use these tools to make new discoveries uh, in his uh, biological environment. And and also, it's the, it's the same with the company. I mean, we've been collaborating now for more than 20 years with Cisbio, now Perkin Elmer, Cisbio. It yes. was a French company, now it's an American one. <laughs> and then
0: I wanted to also mention Cisbio. I, I tried, not only tried some of their reagents, but I've met many people from Cisbio and I thought it, I still think they were such an amazing team. Um, you know, I could I could start naming, name, name dropping, but I really liked, you know, I liked the, the, I liked Francis, the little, uh, the little doll that was, <laughs> that was created at SysBio, and I think it was a great team, and the tools are amazing.
1: Yeah, and, the, and in our case, it's a clear win-win situation that is recognized on both sides. Yes. Uh, we provide them with ideas, new ways to go. Uh, we validate their tools, and uh, we publish their tools in such a way that they are rapidly highly visible in the field. Yeah. So they also like this, uh, like proof that the tools are of good quality. But at some point, um, sometimes <clears throat> I received a, a comment from a referee. And I'm not going to mention who, but I know who it is. <laughs> um, and it was a very good point. He said, wow, your papers are fantastic. But nobody in the world can do these things. Because if we had to buy all the tools to do the experiments, it's going to cost us 10 million dollars or whatever, yeah. euros. It's almost the same. Uh, and, and it's true that our collaboration is really successful also because of this, because we have access to tools that nobody else in the world can have access to. And, uh, or they can, but it's so expensive that nobody can buy it. Uh, but I, I hope that the fact that these tools are so interesting that other ones will develop similar tools and avoid the patents or maybe the patents are never forever. (laughs) So at at some point, these tools will be accessible to everyone and and help people advance uh, science with this.
0: I think, you know, having used the SysBio tools and you having published and helped, you know, collaborated successfully with SysBio, um, you set the groundwork already because when you've worked on the receptor, you've published the data. So if anyone wants to replicate, they don't have to start from scratch.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that also helps in cutting the costs of these things. And I think with over time, kind of knowing you know how much an IP1 kit versus a cyclicam pieces bio kit costs, it's not that expensive. And there is a tremendous amount of literature as to where to start, because you have to figure out how many cells and how long and what's the concentration of the ligands and all of these things. And we're getting there. The other interesting point that you made about collaborating, I think over time, and I think you were kind of a pioneer in that and collaborating with, with private companies, which wasn't something frequent back in the day, or at least it wasn't out there or put out there or public knowledge that has been changing a lot of Labs now collaborate with smaller companies in order to work together and to advance and getting access to these tools, which didn't exist before. So I think we're, we're getting better as scientists in general at opening up our labs and collaborating with companies, which also is important because the deliverables and the goals are different, but the, the common benefit is really advancing understanding GPCR biology.
1: Yes, totally which I, true.
0: Which I think it's it's such a great, great thing. Before we move on to talk a little bit more about collaboration and how you approach, I want I want to touch upon how you approach, you know, the ego part. You mentioned had, had being pulled away from the mGlu receptor uh, projects with the IP3, um, you know, discovery of the IP3 uh, accumulation assay. In your position today, you mentioned that it's very important for you so that with collaborators, it's always a win-win situation. Egos, humans are the same. How do you approach that today? How do you define the structure of a collaboration today?
1: So I think what is really important is that whoever is in the group, one has to recognize what the other is bringing to the group. And it is very important to have this kind of discussion. And uh, we have routinely this discussion with Philippe Rondard, with Eric Trinquet from CISBio, and with my uh, former postdoc in China, Jen Fong Liu. We are, all four of us are very different. Each of us brings something to the the group, because we we all four are working together. And not always trying to be, I'm the one. I'm not the one. I'm just talking about the work we are all doing together. Uh, and this is something that is important. And then you have to respect that everyone can be last author on the paper. And I don't care nowadays. My career is, is done. I mean, in the French system, I'm never going to have any increase in salary. So whatever I do nowadays, I'm going to be stuck there forever <laughs> until I retire. So I have nothing to gain. I have nothing to. So the only thing to do is to allow the others to go up. To grow, to develop, and and so on. So that's why right now I have no. I'm not team leader. I have no lab anymore. I'm a scientist working in Philips Rondana, and I think it's, it is it is it is important for Philip also to grow up, and for me I'm having fun, you know, uh, helping him to grow up and uh, and and get recognized for the work he's doing, and and vice versa because because we we, we work together. The same with Genfong, If you look at most of the our recent publication, we are all three co-corresponding authors in most of the papers. One is last one time, and in another paper it's another one. But all this doesn't doesn't really matter. Uh, we we all have to get benefit from the work we've been doing, and and that is very essential.
0: I like that. I like that. Which which I think. When you when you think about it, for someone at the stage of your career where you are, I think it's amazing that you know, you you just love science and you're just having fun and helping others, which I think this is the way it should be. But when you think
1: of it should always be like this. This is what I keep telling the young scientists, you know, who are eager to have their own group, independent. It's fine to have that as a goal. Because if you don't have a goal like this, you never go into science. But this should not be the primary goal. The primary goal should be doing good science. If you do good science and enjoy science, the career will follow. I never, ever met someone who did good science and was not successful. But I did meet a lot of people who were eager in having their independence and group and so on. And and at the end, spend too much time trying to, you know, work on their network and always say I'm the best and so on, but not doing that much. And at the end, they were not successful. I mean, love what you do, and usually, the chance that you're going to be successful is never one over one, but close to one.
0: Yeah, and I think it. it, I think it's important. You're making a very important point as to really follow the science and love what you do, and the rest will come um because that's that that's what comes through to people is how much time how much effort how much you love it and that is going to be recognized now i think mm-hmm. nowadays with the number of the limited number of permanent positions you had mentioned that you know at that time you came back at a very young age from from the us and you got a permanent position it's not the case anymore and i think Junior scientists and postdocs have to realize that you can be an amazing scientist. You can love what you do, but it does not have to be in academia. It can be anywhere. And you have to keep an open mind about that.
1: Don't, don't forget, I mean, because of our collaboration, we have a common laboratory between our academic lab and CISBio. So any people from SysBio from R&D, can come and work in our lab and vice versa. We can go and work on their site. It's only hundred kilometers away. <laughs> and and the, the, the very nice things for the for the students and postdocs from my group, is that basically most of them, if not all of them, being trained as a, a PhD student or postdoc, after their time in our lab, even though they published very nice papers, started to have uh, uh, nice findings and so on, they, most of them choose to go into the industry. Why? Much less stressful in many cases, much better organization. Uh, The responsibilities are clear um, and and no such an issue is grant grant, uh, system. So it may be uh, specific to the French area, where it's kind of difficult to raise money to do a good science, Um, but at least most of my former students and postdocs are in in industry and quite successful.
0: Yeah, I think you you make a good point about you know not having to think about fundraising, and you don't have to, to to think about those. And I think in industry, especially now, from from what I'm seeing, it you have clear goals, clear deliverables, and a lot of times academics used to say, "Well, in industry, you cannot be creative, or you cannot," and it's not true anymore. You That's can. True be creative you can have a portion of your time dedicated to a special project who knows maybe you're going to discover something and you're going to shift the entire you know pipeline of the company through that discovery and not to you know say don't go into academia but it's difficult and i think nowadays we have to realize that If your goal is to do good science and enjoy what you're doing, it kind of doesn't matter where you do it as long as you're really good at what you're doing and you really enjoy it.
1: And if you enjoy it, you can still... I mean, what is good in in academia, if you really want to be successful, you have to narrow it down, 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 you know, talk about the amino acid number 347 and concentrate on the movement. the, 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 The more focused you are, yeah. The better chance of success in a way. You know, I, I remember a friend of mine saying there are seven rules to be successful in science. Okay. The I'm first is me. focus, the second is focus, <laughs> the third is focus, and so on, up to focus at the end. <laughs> which is true. And at the end it's frustrating. If you if you you know, most people are so much concentrated to be successful in their in their field that at the end they are not so much open minded. And they are sometimes a very limited view of science. Whereas yes. if you go into industry, because you change topic, you have to, people are much more open-minded because they have to hear, they, they know much more about different topics, different fields. Uh, and so it, in, intellectually, it is also very exciting.
0: I think so too. I think so too. <laughs> and I think you make a great point about focusing. And I've, <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of talks and that sometimes I disconnect because that person is presenting, as you mentioned, about that amino acid or that group or that phosphorylation site, and it's so focused and they have a hard time putting the presentation in a format that anyone with a scientific background might be interested in and might understand. And if you don't understand the lingo, you're like, okay, so who cares? Who cares? Exactly. That, that's that's and for it's interesting because for a long time in my mind i thought you know i may, may have not been smart enough to understand this but now with with some you know with some recul i realize that it's not me it's that that focus yes and you can't be an expert at everything but you can be a generalist yes. with a lot of expertise i ask this from everyone and i think the answer is most of 99.9% of the time is yes. Um, do you think GPCRs are still good tar- direct targets and why?
1: Yes, of course. Otherwise, I wouldn't still work on, uh, on this. I, I had that feeling, especially in the glutamate receptor field, that mGluRs will be an excellent target and will be a target used in medicines at the end of my career. Because I started my career discovering, participating in the discovery of these. I said, 40 years ahead, there will be a drug. I, I was wrong. <laughs> so far, there is no drug on the market targeting these receptors, but I still believe that that, that there are very exciting targets. And for the other GPCRs, obviously, I mean, it's it's a question of time. It's a question, I mean, if you look at, you know, Fiona Marshall showed me like a few years ago, the number of new drugs on the market, most of them were still targeting GPCRs. This was like a few years ago. And I guess it's still true. I mean, I didn't check this last year, what was on the market and how many of these drugs were targeting GPCRs. And I also believe, you know, Drug targeting GPCRs may not necessarily only be small molecules.
0: I agree, I agree. There is a revolution with, with therapeutic antibodies yes. right now. It's the, it's the new craziness, and, which yes. is a good thing. It's also a challenging uh, problem due to you know all sorts of technical issues. If yes. there were a, uh, a drug targeting mGluR receptors, what would that indication be? In what context?
1: Um, I still, I still do believe schizophrenia is a good target for drug targeting MGLR, especially MGLR2, maybe MGLR5, or maybe both at the same time. This is my goal right now. I do believe four can be a good target for Parkinson's disease, but one has to take into account this possible language And, and that's an issue that both, uh, Colin in Jeff Kahn's lab and our group are taking into account nowadays. But these two, uh, targets are i do believe they're going to make it one day i bet <laughs>
0: okay okay well the minute the minute it happens we have to jump on another podcast episode too to discuss uh, this what do you think yeah. is missing from from the MgloR field or you know when it comes to pot- potentially methodologies or key information in order to get to that drug
1: what are we missing um, the So so far, the the drug companies, first the first molecule who went on clinical trials were uh, small molecules acting as agonists. And these small molecules acting as agonists do not go into the brain very easily. So you had to use prodrugs, they were not selective, they were targeting several TPCRs at the same time, Mg2 and Mg3 in that case. Uh, so these were not necessarily the best uh, drugs possible to, to go for for uh, um, a therapeutic application. The second series of drugs and the fascinating drugs are the allosteric modulators. And these are, of course, when these were being have been discovered in the early 2000, they were like, uh, you know, new, uh, new ways open, new possibilities, wow, fantastic, and so on. But... Right after, uh, a few years after, I said, well, if you look at the TM domains of m there is no sodium site. There is nothing at all polar. So any molecule binding into this uh, allosteric site in the M-Glu receptor within the 7TM domains are all highly hydrophobic molecules. Not necessarily the best way to develop a drug. It's very good because it goes into the brain, but it sticks everywhere, and any protein with an hydrophobic core has an hydrophobic pocket where these hydrophobic molecules could fit. So the possibility of off-target of these allosteric molecules targeting the 70 ogen of MBRs is high. And, and, and this is, uh, uh, in my view, um, a limitation for, this, for these molecules. But you know, then it's back. Like,
0: Yes, one can find a
1: drug that can make it and go up to the to the market, uh, but yeah. Yeah.
0: hopefully, hopefully soon, sooner than so later. So let's go.
1: Maybe maybe nanobodies would be a yeah a a, a, new, uh, a new way to go. Who knows?
0: Who knows? And, and I think you know there's advantages and disadvantages to small molecules versus antibodies, nanobodies, and maybe we'll find that that combination. Even anti- antibody drug conjugates could be that middle,
1: oh, middle row. I, I, I have a grant on that specific issue, right? having a, a antibody on one on one subunit and then a ligand attached to the other subunit in order to control the yeah. uh, atheroadaptic entities. So this is, this is also an interesting project. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Awesome. All right. Last yeah. but not least, uh, we've talked a little bit about advice and to how to contribute to the field, about the fact that you need to love science, you need to love what you do, and the rest will kind of come. What other advice would you have for, for young scientists who want to contribute to the GPCR field in general, potentially for the, uh, into the uh, class C and receptor field?
1: Um, maybe, maybe start doing something else than GPCRs and bring the technology to the GPCR field. Uh, I think we, are, we have to learn a lot from physicists, for example, from mathematicians. Um, from um, all the fancy microscopy that are being developed nowadays. So I think it would, I, I, I would recommend the young people to go into this, learn about fancy technology that are not yet being commonly used in the field and then apply that to the field. That—that uh, that, uh, that is a way to go. Um, it's one possibility at least. The first it. I think about, I think of.
0: I think that's 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 a great point because we other fields are doing the same. Coming into the GPCR field, learning about what we've been using as methodologies. I'm thinking Fred, Brett, you name it, and then applying it to some other field in order to understand, you know, confirmation functional relationships of their favorite proteins.
1: Yeah,
0: which it it goes both ways. The sw- the door swings both ways in that in that sense. All right. Again, uh, a last, well, I have two more, two more questions for you. We've talked a little bit about, you know, how you got into the field and how you ended up working um, on mGluR receptors. Any aha moments that you had during your time as a scientist that shaped your trajectory? It could be also a personal experience that without which you, you think you'd be a different person today.
1: Uh, so I already mentioned this situation when we discovered the emulsions, and the, you know the split between the people instead of you yeah. know, working together. This this has been uh, something that affected me as a scientist. Um, uh, but then I came back to the to the to the field uh, from a, a, another, with another perspective, from another perspective. Uh, then what else? Um,
0: while you think about it, I think that you had mentioned uh, going to university with the idea that you wanted to be a teacher and then uh, you met uh, a scientist at the university and you realized actually doing research might be also a reward well, the,
1: the, the point is that i I, had, I met these these teachers at the university who teach me about uh, neuropharmacology so that you can control your mind your 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 behavior your your um, your brain basically with small molecules was, you know, antipsychotics and anxiolytics and all these this, this molecules. And I said, I want to discover new, and I want to work on the discovery of such molecules for the future. And what is really disappointing is that so far, we didn't do much over the last 50 years in that field. Um, so still that's something that is of much interest to me. Um, and If I can do anything, you know, trying to help companies discovering new ways to treat these Mm -hmm. these patients, that would be uh, really uh, fantastic. But I I also realize that drugs uh, may not be the only way of of treating psychiatric diseases. And we also have to consider other other ways uh, that can improve the quality of life of these patients. Uh, And so this is... uh, also something that is, uh, one has to consider. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um,
0: okay, perfect. Uh, the, I th- the last question, I don't think it, it matters at this point because you had mentioned that you are, you don't have a lab officially anymore, but you work in, in Philippe Rondard's lab and you're helping him. But if there are any job openings in Philippe's lab or, you know, working with you, collaborating with you, where can people find you? What do? Where can people find you? Let's say someone is listening to the podcast episode and they say, I have a great idea, a great new technology. I want to work with you. Where can people find you?
1: Just contact me by email through uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, Give me a phone call. I mean, uh,
0: <laughs> do people still do that? I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm very open. I have no more administrative responsibilities. I did that for 15 years, wow. running a big institute. And this has been really uh, difficult to carry at the same time, all the administration and the science. At the end, I decided to do only science. Uh, I love it. So my door is open to anyone all over the the planet to come and and, uh, talk to me, uh, come and visit. Uh, We had Ali Salapur, probably you know him. Yes, of course. He was He was with us. He's still with us because he's going to go back to Toronto next week. So whoever want to come and practice the technology we're using, come in. We, we, we're going to have fun with you. So just that's- ring at my email or whatever. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> and, perfect. And we have a chat. That's yeah. perfect. With pleasure, with pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Jean-Philippe, for your time.
1: Thank you for all you do for the GPCR field. Thank
0: you. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Bye-bye
0: thank you for joining us and listening in to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our team members, Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, and our newest Dr. GPCR protege, Montserrat Avila-Zozoya. Welcome to the team, Monse. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at any time at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.